0: Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge Assessment Podcast. I'm Ashley Capaldi, and with me today is Professor Dame Athene Donald from Churchill College. Hello. And we're going to be chatting a bit about your own educational experiences today, what you've been doing at Churchill College, and what's going on in the world of science at the moment. Fun. So where did you start? You went to an all-girls school. I did. I went to
1: an all-girls grammar school in London, it was a, academically quite a strong school. It had always sent a few uh, students each year to Oxford and Cambridge, so I had that as a sort of aspiration. And I think the fact that it was an all-girls school was relevant because no one told me that doing physics was an odd thing to do. I didn't have brothers who tried to say that either, so. It, It it wasn't really till I came to Cambridge as an undergraduate I appreciated just what a minority I was.
0: So what was it you studied at Cambridge? Which area did you decide to specialise in? I did the natural
1: sciences tripos, which means that in the first year you do a spread of subjects and it was always on the physical sciences side. So I started with physics, chemistry and what was then known as um, crystalline state. I think it would be called material science now, as well as mathematics.
0: Okay. And then what took you over to the US after that?
1: Well, I did my PhD in Cambridge as well. Um, And then I went to Cornell University. By that point, I was married. And going to the States was something that offered both my husband and I opportunities in the kinds of things we were interested in. He's a
0: mathematician. And tell me a bit about your What's It research. Do we call it a What's It projects that you're best known for? <laughs> I don't think it's what I'm best known for. but it's <laughs> One of just, your earliest works. It's
1: one of my earliest ones, and it was one where it's the kind of thing that's very easy to explain to people. So people say, what kind of physics do you do? And because I do, um, soft matter physics doesn't usually convey a great deal. So I say I work on things like starch, food, and Cheesy Watts is an example of that. So I had actually previously been working on synthetic polymers, plastics, uh, trying to understand their strength, their failure mechanisms. And progressing into cheesy wotsits didn't seem such a stretch because I was still trying to understand what makes them strong if you bite them you know, what do you feel and how does the way you process the starch to produce these affect that? So really it was uh, what is usually known as structure property relationships just applied to an extruded starch foam, which was what we called it, but to the public it's probably a cheesy whatts-it.
0: I see. So apart cheesy whatsits aside, what would you say has been maybe your greatest personal achievement from a research perspective?
1: I would like to think that one of the key things I've done is not a result, it's the fact that I made or or I contributed to making the idea of a physicist working in some of these kind of wackier areas um, respectable, if you like. So in particular, um, as I say, I worked on starch, biological material, and a physicist working on the messy world of biology back in the 80s and 90s when I started this was regarded as a bit odd. And these days, uh, that interface is um, very fashionable, if you like. And I like to think that I contributed to making the idea of crossing boundaries in that way and applying the laws of physics to unusual situations an
0: okay thing for physicists to do. I would say so. And so, what other projects have you? Enjoyed on top of that. So, you you did something at the John Innes Institute up in Norfolk, did you?
1: That's right. And that was part of the work on starch. That was very much working with people who understood um, breeding, genetics, and all the rest of it. Again, trying to understand the relationship between the structure, um, which I could examine by sort of standard physical techniques. And the endpoint properties, but as affected by what they were doing with looking at hybrids of different kind and, and that kind of stuff. So
0: that they gave the the genetic background. And of course, these days, you're in two thousand and six. You were appointed director of the Women in Science, Engineering, and Technology Initiative and you're also gender equality champion for the university. So what kinds of barriers do you think girls can face when it comes to STEM subjects?
1: Well, the barriers that women in the university face are, I think, slightly different from, from the one that girls face at school. And I should say I stopped being um, the university's gender equality champion in 2014 when I became master of Churchill. There are only so many hours in the day. <laughs> um, but I think at school, the problems arise because, if you like, of our cultural expectations from an incredibly early age, the kinds of toys that boys and girls are given and and the way teachers interact with them in the classroom uh, is different. And I think that leads to uh, girls receiving subtle messages that the hard sciences, that's physics and computer science and, and going on into engineering, those subjects are not so much for them. Um, biology, uh, veterinary science seems to be a very different thing. And if our uh, undergraduate uh, vet school, of course, has 80% girls on that. So it cuts the other way. The boys are deterred from that. And I think it's everything in our society gives those subtle messages about what it is okay for a girl to do or for a boy to do from a really early age. And I think that that impacts on why we don't see more girls doing uh, physics
0: A-level and going on to university to study physics and engineering. So those women who do go on to stay in the field past education, what kind of examples of bias have you maybe seen towards female scientists? There is the uh, slightly derogatory
1: or patronised attitude uh, that that work wasn't yours, surely your male colleague did it. Or there was a a terrible story recently about two women who wrote a paper, I can't even remember in which field, and they got a referee's comments back saying, why don't you get a male co-author? And you you just think this cannot still be happening. It is incredible, but it is. And I think when it comes to the kinds of ways people write letters of reference, for instance, that, that women are... Uh, kind and helpful and good team players and the men are brilliant and world leaders and you know people who write these letters aren't necessarily intending to be you know that uh, sort of biased that they see the good attributes in women are often about what are known as communal they are things about how the woman interacts with other women as opposed to their capabilities as a
0: scientist. So what ty- what advice would you give for school leaders then because you mentioned just before that this is starting at a much earlier age so we need to get this fixed faster when kids get into school so how can we maybe start to mitigate that gender split happening
1: Well if you're talking about a primary school I think it's it's things like which kinds of activities that children are directed towards. I and mean, one of the things that is always said about women is they are less good at doing mental rotation type tests. And there is some evidence that that is true, though I don't think all those studies demonstrate it. But if if as a girl you are never given those kind of puzzles, you will not learn how to do it. I mean, it isn't it isn't necessarily all innate. Some of it will come from the kinds of activities you've practiced. Um, so I think making sure that you do not distinguish between what activities you offer boy and girl. And as I say, it cuts both ways. That The boys are probably discouraged from doing anything that might make them look like they're nurturing or kind to others. You now, we don't have many male nurses. That's probably a problem, too. So I think school leaders at primary school can, can be quite careful about, what kind of atmosphere they create. And of course, it's also what kind of books children read. Are, are the girls all sitting at the bottom of the tree while Jack climbs it? Yeah, that's the that's the kind of book I was brought up on and it's very irritating. At secondary school, I think it's how the teachers interact in the classroom. Um, the Institute of Physics has done a lot of work and showed, for instance, that teachers are more likely to call on boys to answer questions, to praise girls for for concentrating, but not for doing good work kind of thing. And the Institute of Physics has also shown that the whole school ethos matters. It isn't just our science teachers encouraging the girls in the classroom. It is the whole way that the, the school operates. And again, let me give you an example. I went to my son's parents' evening at the end of year seven, and the English teacher said to us, well, of course, boys can't do English. And you think, What?
0: You're an English (laughs) teacher. (laughs) You cannot write off
1: 50% of the population like that. And that was a very stark example. But I think a lot of teachers think like that that girls don't do maths, physics, computing, whatever, and boys don't do languages. Uh, And it's just hopeless. You have to think
0: about the child, not the stereotype. So you mentioned earlier that you yourself went to an all-girls school. How does that look different then in terms of other schools in getting girls interested in STEM subjects?
1: The Institute of Physics did uh, a study looking at the likelihood of girls going on to study physics A-level from GCSE. And it was very clear that if you went to an all-girls school, you were about twice as likely. I mean, schools... All girls' schools were about, had about twice the proportion of girls going on to do A-level compared with mixed schools. And I think that's that's a terrible result in a way. I mean, I went to an all-girls school, and as I said, no one told me I couldn't do physics. So that was fine, and I can absolutely see that. But I don't think all girls' schools are necessarily the way to educate future generations or all boys' schools. You know, I think I think society is co-educational, as it were, and the school should be. Um, So I think that is something to worry about. And of course, it's not clear whether that difference arises from uh, the teachers or the lack of boys saying to girls, you don't want to do those subjects at an age when they're incredibly impressionable and aware of how they fit into the the sort of um, society. Or, Or is it simply because As for me, no one said you can't do it. So they just get on with it and they don't think that it's odd. But I think it is a a concern and school leaders should look at their their whole ethos and think about what can they do to to remove any barriers, even if the barriers are nothing to do with the school.
0: So how does it look for female students at Churchill College who want to study STEM? Is there things the college does to specifically encourage female applicants? We are trying very hard. Churchill is unique
1: in that it has by statute a requirement we admit 70% of our undergraduates and indeed our fellows in the STEM subjects. And that means that because we have each year a large intake in engineering and mathematics, the numbers of girls applying is inevitably going to be lower. So we are trying very proactively to to make the, the potential applicants recognise that this is a place that is welcoming to, to women. Um, so we've put some videos out, for instance, about what some of our current students feel, our female students feel, to try and make... Um, the the students, as they are making their mind up about whether they want to come to Cambridge, and if they do want to come to Cambridge, what college to apply for, to make it apparent to them that despite this heavy STEM emphasis, they will utterly fit in and they will be happy with us.
0: So do you think your appointment, you're the first woman to ever hold the role of master at Churchill College, do you think that would have any kind of impact? Or did you not think about your gender at all when you were given that role?
1: Um, No, I I was very conscious and people absolutely said, oh, well, now we've got a female master and the problems will go away. And I said, no, it's not that simple. If I were a student, I wouldn't really care who the master was. That's terribly remote. That's not what's going to matter to them. But I hope being the first female master, I have absolutely raised awareness of the issues. And one of the things that I have set in motion is a, a series of what I call conversations with um, women from different spheres of life but I mean someone like Martha Lane Fox for instance or Mary Beard to give two examples and just have a conversation with them which we put out on the web about how they have got to where they are and what things they think are important. Now neither Martha Lane Fox nor Mary Beard are scientists obviously but um my next talk is with the, the woman who is the executive chair of the bbsrc one of the science research councils so you know i absolutely try to make sure we have a, a spread of people and that again is to show that you know the college takes serious women seriously and if you take yourself seriously as a, a, a you know
0: an a level candidate you should be thinking about these things so we focused a lot on what you've done to address the gender balance in stem in cambridge but broadly speaking, what excites you in science at the moment?
1: What I'm getting much more heavily involved in is, is not science research per se, it's about policy for science. So trying to make sure that um, the funding regime is equitable, um, that uh, we are working out how, how to do the best we can with the funds we have, And uh, interacting with policymakers, be it civil servants or um, ministers or NGOs, whatever, I think many scientists in a university like Cambridge love their research and they don't necessarily look beyond it. And of course, some of it is also about um, science for policy. So global warming is an obvious one. You know, what are the scientists doing? How are we going to improve our energy generation or, you know, what steps can we take to mitigate? So there's that side too. But I think most bench scientists in Cambridge don't look that far out. And and so one of the things we're trying to do is to make people more aware. And and Churchill is involved in
0: that work as well as um, me personally. So thank you very much, Athene, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to the Cambridge Assessment podcast. You can find more on our website at www.cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Just search for Podcast Gallery and we're also on YouTube.